VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, April the 25th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with Dave when you pick up the phone. Give us a shout in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 888 vocm which is 8626. Well, still socked in here in the city of St. John's. A little bit of flurry action, mixed bag across the province, but hopefully you're feeling good wherever you are, despite this spring-ish weather. All right, and the weather is absolutely wreaking havoc at St. John's International Airport. Tons of frustrated travelers zipped me off some very sharply worded emails in the last couple of days. So, have there been flights canceled, Air Canada flights canceled since Friday? What is actually going on? The Mr. Hogan out at the airport is saying that Air Canada is bringing in some additional aircraft to clear up the backlog, but I'm a bit confused. So, some of the smaller aircraft have been able to land, the Sunwings and PAL and the like, but the larger aircraft, such as Air Canada uses, have been unable to get in. So, it has been really windy, it has been extremely foggy, but certainly the Air Canada aircraft are equipped with whatever's the compatibility issue with the fog system, the CAT-3 system that the uh, airport installed some years back. So not sure exactly why it is the way it is this go-around. Now, generally, this time of year has been tricky for travelers, but I thought that that CAT-3 system had really alleviated a lot of those potential fogged-out aircraft concerns. But anyway, and also on that front, we did mention yesterday that the federal government has tabled new legislation to revamp and give more teeth to the Passenger Bill of Rights, including the ability to fund the Canadian Transport Agency, that is, the ability to find airlines some $250,000, a tenfold increase, still plenty of loopholes, but moving closer to what is pretty good standards set by the UK regarding protecting passengers. But anyway, you want to take it on, let's go. All right. So Mercer and these New Jersey Devils, they won again in uh, Madison Square Garden last night to even the series at two apiece. They lost two at home, went two on the road, so they're back in that series. Newhook and the Avalanche deadlocked with the upstart Seattle Kraken at two games apiece. And I gave up on the Leafs game last night. It was a bit of a snoozer. It looked like Tampa Bay had him right where they wanted him. They were up 4-1 after two periods. I wake up to watch SportsCenter this morning and what? They came back to win? 5-4 in overtime? The you know the whole uh, cry it was four one that used to be something that people used to taunt or to tease Leafs fans of course with the colossal collapse against the Boston Bruins some years back where they had a four one lead so that is a massive victory for the Toronto Maple Leafs scored three times in the last ten minutes to take it to overtime and then of course Kerfoot tips in the winner so Leafs fans were dancing in the streets maybe a little bit prematurely Tampa Bay is not going to go easily although ta- uh, pardon me Toronto has a three one series lead but. I was pretty shocked to see that this morning. Good for the Leafs and good for their fans. Okay, so the House of Assembly reconvenes today after three weeks of not sitting. So let's help them set the agenda right here on this program. You know, they can talk about the obvious ones. Well, number one, they got to pass the budget. There was only a couple of days of debate before they uh, shut it down for constituency week and the Easter break, but they're back in there today. So the budget, and of course, that's a formality that will make it through and will be enacted and the policies and programs and the monies will flow. So we can tackle that. And then they'll talk about the, the broad strokes of health care and cost of living and what have you. But there are so many issues 
issues that we can indeed uh, put in their minds for consideration, certainly for the opposition parties, to help formulate some questions for the government, of which, again, there are many. So, like in long-term care, I was, someone shared a picture with me of an elderly lady that was pretty battered and bruised, not entirely sure whether or not it was a fall, but if it was, it was from two stories, because she was really beat up, and it's an extremely sad photo to see. So, issues inside long-term care, whether that be with human resources or otherwise. Then they'll talk about maybe wind energy, talk about daycare, and maybe, just maybe, talk about snow crab. So it's a big deal. It doesn't matter if you're involved in the fishery or not because we do have a potential problem that can affect species and fisheries for years to come if we can't get the price right. On that front, the Association of Seafood Producers yesterday dug in their heels. They say they will not renegotiate a new price with their harvesters. They say the market has collapsed. There's a glut of crab in the market. At the same time, they go on to say that the boats being tied up is making a dire situation worse, and if they started fishing, that maybe the competition would drive prices higher. So it's kind of one or the other, isn't it? There's either a glut and the market has collapsed, but more crab in the market would see competition driving prices up. Not so sure how to digest that particular dichotomy. But anyway, on this front, we do indeed have to figure out what we do to set prices. So the FFAW says you know, we have to establish something like a crab marketing board. Okay, that's probably a pretty good idea. But inside this particular issue, so of course, both sides are going to want what they want when they want it. It's just standard operations. It happens every single year on virtually every single species. Then they talk about the ability to ship crab out. Okay, if you land it here, you can't ship it out, but you can steam across the Gulf and sell it. But then we also look across, see what's happening in other parts of Atlantic Canada and in Quebec. So Quebec, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI, they're getting two twenty-five a pound. So I'm not so sure that there's ever going to be an adjustment this season on the price of snow crab. And the ASP goes on to say that they will not be purchasing crab in the fall. There's some comments about the quality in the fall of the year versus the conditions right now and the caliber and the quality of the snow crab. We have a huge resource, one of the largest resources of snow crab in the world. And it's not looking like anyone's going to be executed or taken out of the water this go around. Then you add in the plant workers. So there's been lots of focus on the harvesters. Fair ball. But inside the plants, there's some 5,000 people employed in the processing sector here in this province. A uh, few of them obviously spoke to each other and said, let's send off an email to open line to make this one point. That fishermen are going to be able to get their EI up until the middle of June, but plant workers probably won't qualify, won't get the weeks for their EI this go-around. One of the questions you're asked on the application is if you're ready and willing to work, and the plant workers, and they asked me to keep their names out of it because they don't want to get into a to-and-fro, a racket, with their fellow harvesters, or pardon me, the harvesters, that may be part of their family, or certainly part of their community, so they're not going to be able to get their stamps, which is going to be a problem down the line. So... I don't have any skin in this game, but if the market's not going to be able to pay any more than it is right now, then where do we go? What do we do? So the Premier said he was willing to sit down with the FFAW to talk about the potential uh, to ship the crab out. But the difference between $2.20 and $2.25, will that change in any of those other provinces before the end of this spring crab season? I don't know. Anyway, you want to take it out? Let's do it. Also looking for thoughts or comments from anywhere in the province, but certainly for the residents of uh, Conception Bay South, Paradise, and the City of St. John's, as they've entered into this agreement to work together collaboratively uh, in forming a regional economic development agency. So focus areas like ocean technology, trying to attract business and foreign investment to the region. Still some... 
still a little bit uh, confusing on my end about exactly how it's going to work. The concept of working together makes sense. They talk about bigger is better. But of course, each community is going to want their slice of the pie. And the level of competition is not going away, but they're trying to find a way to compete and to collaborate at the same time. Maybe it's going to be a good idea. I'm not so sure. I mean, I don't think it's a bad idea, but how it's eventually going to work are still some looming questions. But as a taxpayer in the city of St. John's, I sure hope it works. I mean, given the tax base and population and tax assessments, they have divvied up the financial contributions, and there are non-financial contributions as well. So the breakdown, once again, CBS uh, contributing 16.5%, Paradise 13.5%, and St. John's 70% of the investments coming from taxpayers here in this city. So certainly if you're a resident of one of those cities who want to talk towns and want to take it on and then yes the other bad r words that we could and should be talking about is the whole where are we in the status to regionalize and this is not saying that it's the be all and end all but I think in certain parts of the province a certain uh, advanced level of cooperation between communities might be a necessity versus just a concept anyway let's take that on again today nobody wants to talk about COVID I get it I totally understand But there's a new story today which I think is worthy of discussion. So it's not about mandates or restrictions or anything of the like. It's about what provinces are doing or not doing to recognize and to establish treatment clinics for folks who are suffering from long COVID. So they had the infection and the symptoms persisted for some three months plus. We hear from, like, for instance, uh, Tara Moriarty, a name we heard a lot throughout the pandemic saying that this is a crisis in the making and it will have an economic impact, but of course an impact on your individual health. My question would be, when we gave up testing, like remember at the beginning, Dr. Michael Ryan, right? He had test, 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 isolate, and hopefully that will control the spread. And you know, the whole thought about it's uh, going to take two weeks and all this, I get it. And I understand your frustration. I lived it too, right? But if and when long COVID is real, and apparently it's real for thousands of people in this province, if we didn't test you formally through public health, how are we even going to be able to acknowledge that you may indeed be suffering with long COVID and eligible to be treated in whatever clinic, but we're not, we don't even have one. In other parts of the country, they do. They've established a plan to deal with these patients. Here in this province, not so much. So the department is responsible for strategy and what have you and for uh, the policies associated with the healthcare delivery system. But the health authority, the newly established Roll Forward One Health Authority, is responsible for these operational issues. So if you are someone who has this particular issue regarding persistent, long-lasting symptoms from a COVID infection, we can take it on. But again, it's not about anything to restrict anything you do, anyone you talk to, anywhere you go. It's not about mandates. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about actual health. So that's a topic we can take on. All right. So the federal government has kind of changed their tactics when dealing with the strike. Of course, PSAC are striking around the country. Some 155,000 of them were involved. But of course, some of them are essential. So they're reporting to work, having to cross picket lines, which I'm sure is uncomfortable for all hands involved. But now in what they're calling an open letter to Canadians coming from Treasury Board, they're really talking about their four key areas of concern. And that's the four key uh, demands that have not been uh, negotiated to either side's satisfaction at this point. Wage increases, control over telework arrangements, a ban on contracting out work, and priority for senior staff. These get pretty tricky. So start with the wages. 
there's a bit of confusion now as to whether or not PSAC has reduced their demand from 13.5% over the course of three years. Treasury Board has offered 9% over three years. They say that uh, adds up to an additional $6,250 per year for the average employee. They've also agreed to a signing bonus. They haven't told us what that signing bonus is, but it gets sticky when they talk about control over telework. On that front, the president of Treasury Board is Mona, Mona Fortier. She says it's the right of management to continue to evaluate how to best deliver services, and it will not be part of collective bargaining. So that sounds like a real standoff in the making because Chris Aylward and PSAC have been really quite firm is that they want this enshrined in the next deal that they can negotiate at collective bargaining. So that's a big one. Then there's going to be the issue with contracting at work. Do we not have the right people in place to be able to avoid at all costs contracting out work? Sometimes I suppose it's necessary. Even PSAC is not saying they're not looking for an all-out ban on contracting out the work, but they want to see it reduced, and so it should be reduced. On that front, I think PSAC is right. And then talking about uh, priority for senior staff. Okay, this one is not going to go over well inside the rank and file. So they're talking about the fact that if and when there's a right-sizing or they've identified jobs that can indeed go by the wayside, maybe we're brought in to help manage or to navigate some of the COVID-related support programs. They're talking about evaluating employees based on merit versus seniority. Long the hallmark of organized labor has been the seniority control, the seniority issues, and the ability for seniority to play a massive role in your future and the security of your job. Now the government, Treasury Board in particular, is saying they want to be able to evaluate it simply on meritocracy. So you know full well between it's a red line regarding uh, remote work and the ability for government that wants to evaluate employees based on their merit versus their seniority. It sounds like we have arrived at a really tricky, contentious spot. You know, it's an interesting tactic for the government to, for all intents and purposes, be negotiating in public with this open letter to Canadians. And it must be terrible on the picket lines with this dreadful spring weather, but let's talk about the job action and what it means. Because, you know, they've changed their tactics as well, PSAC, taking their picket lines to more strategic locations, which will absolutely have an impact beyond picketing in front of Minister O'Regan's office, in front of the Sir Humphrey Gilbert building, or what have you. Someone also said yesterday that they weren't quite pleased to see the picketers occupy the War Memorial in downtown St. John's. If that's something that you want to take on, we can talk about it as well. Okay, a couple of quickies before we get to the break. Every time I hear a story like this, it really gives me pause for concern, as it would for everybody listening to the show this morning. So the RCMP out in Bay St. George are warning parents that there's been a spotting of a suspicious vehicle and driver approaching children in the area. One such uh, incident happened in Robinson's. This vehicle should be easy to spot. So it's an older green van with a Texas license plate. So if you see anything like this happening or it's been reported to you, please report it to police or to Crime Stoppers. And then becomes the difficult conversation that we all had to have with our children about what to do in these types of circumstances. Because it's extremely scary if you're a parent. And you don't want to be in the business of scaring the pants off the kids. That's not that's a poor way to put it. Uh, you don't want to be in the business of making them fearful and looking over their shoulder at every turn and everyone is out there to get them. But if they find themselves in a situation like that, we really do have to arm them with how they should react. So if you see this older green van with a Texas license plate out around Bay St. George, 
And apparently social media posts have uh, reported similar incidents in other communities. So, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got to take control of that. And someone asked me, I guess based on a news story they read this morning, about yet another warning for people who may indeed be vulnerable to getting scammed out of their money. So the Better Business Bureau has put out another warning on this front. And you know, they point to social media content, and abs- absolutely, the scammers will mine through your social media to try to come up with some ways to fool you. And we know the ones we've been talking about, the grandparents scam and otherwise. But there's an additional layer of warning, which I think makes a lot of sense. And they refer to it as back during the very much slow quasi-lockdowns during the pandemic about people doing these quizzes on Facebook. And some of the questions that we're asking is your mother's maiden name and what street you grew up on. Key security questions. And people, you know, I guess through their boredom and maybe distraction, maybe offered some of this uh, information, which could seal the deal for a scammer. So someone wanted me to put out that warning. Happy to do exactly that. And also, pretty cool last night, red carpet treatment at the Cineplex Theatre here in the city of St. John's for a special premiere here at Mountain Bonavista of Peter Pan and Wendy. I'm still pretty amazed that Disney came to town. And apparently they had a really good experience. And yes, the arts is not just a hobby. The arts is part of the economy. So I thought that was cool last night. Also, I want to give special mention to our colleagues who um, I've never met out at Rec House Press out in the Port of Basque region. They really made a name for themselves, and deservedly so, when it came to their coverage of Fiona back in September. So they won three major awards at the uh, uh, Atlantic Journalism Awards, which happened last week. So bravo to them. Independent newspaper, which I think goes to show just how important these types of outlets are in the media landscape. So they won for breaking new categories of breaking news, photojournalism portrait feature, and best community newspaper news story. So congratulations to the Rec House Press and their team. That's pretty uh, pretty exciting for them to win those three prestigious awards. And congratulations to the other media outlets who are recognized for their work, including the folks here at VOCM with the Atlantic Journalism Awards. Maybe Rennie Roy, the editor-in-chief at the Red House Press Community Newspaper, would like to discuss what's going on there, their reaction to the wins, whatever the case may be. So congratulations to them. And apparently, folks in the region, we're nowhere near rebuilt after Fiona, and still people filling out paperwork and waiting and wondering when the support that was pledged, whether by individuals, matched by the federal government, managed by the Red Cross, and government th- the government's $30 million for folks to be able to rebuild if their uh, property has been deemed inhabitable, and some of them are gone, washed out of the ocean, still waiting. So we're looking forward to hearing from you on that one. And this one, might not resonate in some of your ears, but for for instance, some of my pals, it absolutely will. So, the slime. <laughs> Dave, you know the slime, right? Of course you do. So, Craig Squires, George Smith, Craig Butler, Peter Morris, Tony Richards, Justin Hall, Wallace Hammond were the members of punk band The Slime. They kind of started it as a joke back in the 70s at Memorial University. They wrote and recorded their first song within 15 or 20 minutes. What's fascinating to me, and I've seen The Slime play, is The Slime. They only played some 30 times, ever, and never played outside the overpass. And some of their records are in high demand. And so they've released a new album at this moment in time. What's it called here? If There's No Rubble, You Haven't Played. It's going to be officially released on the 2nd of June. But imagine, they have still captured the minds and the hearts of their fans over the course of 45 years with only 30 gigs under the belt. So good morning to the slime. Congratulations. Go get them. And last chance to get down the action for the Avalon Celtics 50-50. Today is the last day. The pot's well over 20,000 at this moment in time. You know she loves the 50-50. Help the Celtics help their... uh, 
players and their families control the fees and everything that goes with being a minor hockey association. So go to AvalonCeltics.com, get your 50-50 today during this break. And more importantly, or as importantly, pick up the phone during the break, get in the queue and on the air. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, Jerry. You're on the air. Yes, morning, Patty. How are you doing today? Best kind. How about you? Terrible, buddy. Listen, I'm heading down, bro. Just heading down Brookfield Road, and I don't know the, uh, the government building there, just on the other side of uh, Holden's crane operations shop there. Okay. The yard. Yeah. They they got the traffic backed up there. It's got to be up to uh, it's got to be up to the Orange Store in Commonwealth, and they're not letting the traffic through. There's no question going to be interruptions for the ease of travel or access to certain buildings and the like, which is pretty standard tactics for uh, striking workers. I know it will frustrate the motoring public. Their their ability to strike is enshrined in the Constitution. You know, some people will get irritated with how they choose to strike and where they choose to pick it, but I'm not surprised to hear this this morning. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, people. I don't see how they're going to tolerate this. This is ridiculous. I mean, that's part of the issue, right? You know, I, I suppose I've never been on strike or on a picket line, so I can't speak with, uh, to it with any authority. But right. when they create the level of frustration, then that, that makes the general public just want to see this come to a head. You know, want to see a contract negotiated, collective bargaining to work, and everyone to get back to work and for picket lines to be taken away. So I just suppose that's the strategy they're in. So now that you're frustrated, I'm just uh, naturally assuming that what you'd like to see is for the strike to stop. And for the job oh, action to uh, be uh, dealt with and for people back to work, right? I'll disagree with you there, Patty. I'll okay. tell you what I'd like to see. Okay. I'd like to see him stay out there till the cows come home, and I'll just find a different route. I mean, just because they're on strike shouldn't impede my day-to-day being, uh, living and, and moving about. Fair enough, Jerry. Yeah. Anyway, sorry about the frustration there, buddy. I'll talk to you later on. Uh, don't you worry about it. Frustrations are all, all right by me. Take care. Right on, buddy. Take okay, care. Jerry. Sure. Bye-bye. I mean, I suppose that's part and parcel with how they strategize about how to put additional pressure on the government. Because it's one thing for Mr. Aylward, at the, the president of PSAC, and or his vice presidents and the negotiating team to put their position forward, to go to the media and make their concerns known, make their pitch in an effort not only to speak directly to government, but also to try to get additional uh, support from the general public. That's just how it naturally has evolved over the years. So when they interrupt the flow of traffic or they make it more difficult to access government buildings or what have you, then I suppose that just falls into the overall strategy of trying to get people that just simply want to say, as a, it doesn't really matter if they want to support PSAC or the government, and I've picked a side, but the pressure does come to bear where the government, because the government, of course, holds the cards here, they're the ones that are not living up to the demands from PSAC. So if more and more people are calling their MP here or something and saying, this needs to end, whether it be because you're, there's, the services that you need have been interrupted or stalled, or it's frustrations like you heard from Jerry. But I guess that's part and parcel with what we're dealing with. Uh, you want to take it on, you know what to do. Let's go to line one. Peter, you're on the air. Yes, sir. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Patty, uh, I'd just like to speak about the crab fishery and the tie up there in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. And for those who don't know me, I'd just like to say, you know, I always advocated me 40 years of experience for on behalf of harvesters and like you know 
back a few years ago, we traveled to Flatland Labrador in an old RV, and down in Hickman's Arbor, I went to court. And when RMS was on the go, I put two boats out in Placentia Bay, and the insurance told me I was on my own. But I still put them out, and they were fairly new boats. But anyway, that's a bit about myself. Like I, I done a bit of fishing, and uh, had a few ups and downs along the way. But and you know, like I, I just like to say to the people, I've not been influenced by the FAW, or Jason Sullivan, or or CNL, or anybody else. You know, this is just my own opinion, not my family's. And you know, like. Harvard of Newfoundland and Labrador, like, are tied up right now, Patty, and uh, a lot of us are starting to wonder, you know, what the outcome is going to be. Are we going to lose our fishing season, leave, leave a lot of crab in the water, and be subject to trip limits more severe than the ones that were inflicted on us in the past, and that the price of fuel and stuff like that, you know, like, how much money are we going to have to get increase the price of crab for uh, for the makeup for all this? And, you know, like, right now, PEI in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia is fishing crab, and they're putting crab into the market. We got uh, old crab going into the market. And, you know, like, we trade in U.S. dollars. So, like, I don't know, like, once it goes into U.S. dollars, if it's going into China, Asia, or where it's going, the crab is. I really don't know about that, but it seems like Canada is always trading in U.S. dollars in the crab market, if I'm right in saying that. Well, once you sell, once you deal with the United States, eventually there's a currency uh, uh, concern, for sure. But, I mean, the price here, I'm a little bit confused by even some of the arguments being made that, you know, on one hand, they say there's a glut of crab in the market, the market has collapsed, and then they, the ASP goes on to say that if more... A crab is put in the market, the competition will uh, drive the price up. I'm not exactly sure how that works. But even trying to sell it elsewhere, if they're only getting 225 a pound on the mainland in Atlantic Canada and including in Quebec, then where do we go from here? You know, if they say, here's some of the numbers that they've been using. So the 220 price was set when the market price was five, $5.75 American, about seven seventy nine Canadian. The market price now apparently is down to 480 US or 650 Canadian. And consequently, it takes about a pound and a half raw crab to produce one pound of value, market value processed crab, which costs producers $3.38 Canadian per pound. That's the numbers they've offered. So it looks like a pretty tight spot. Well, you know, Barry, like all that said and done, like we've been hearing numbers now since last January when FAW Greg Brady were going putting people in the streets. You know, but like let's let's get past the numbers now, Patty, and deal with reality. And reality is just what I just said that time. Are we going to leave half our crab in the water? And we may have to do that anyway, leave some in the water, because I really don't believe processors want some out. And are we going to start late? Are we going to put all the boats out to sea at the same time? Because there's a lot of boats start after the other boats, like the one down north, stuff like that. Uh, the bigger ones, they come to St. John's and fish out of there, but they're always got a problem with ice and stuff like that. And, and that's understandable. But now everybody's going to go out to one time, and I think, yes, that's going to put a lot of crab into the market. But PEI in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia right now is putting crab into the market, like I just said. 
And so the old crab are going in too. I think there's a fluctuation of price there, maybe five, ten cents old versus new. So how much of an increase are we going to have to get today to make up for those trip limits, for the last of crab, and losing our fish rate? You know, I, I just wonder, like, I'm not on social media, but I hear a lot of stuff, and it, uh, it's mind-boggling. You can do stuff, but you've got to have logic behind it. Maybe if you're a rich person, you're a rich harvester, or a boat owner, whatever the case may be, maybe you could say, leave it in the water. Leave it in the water. Well, okay, that's okay for the fellow to leave it in the water. But when this EOI cuts off, and a month later than that, and you got no crab in and no EOI, because we know what happens to EOI when you ask for it from the government, because the people down north, when they get problem with ice, they'll know how flexible the government is on that. Very short period of time, and uh, if at all. And, uh, you know, someone, someone got to explain to the harvester just exactly what they're expecting. Now, there's a Urner Berry report coming out today. There's another one coming out Thursday. And this is what I'm saying, Patty. Like, I'm not telling anyone to do anything. I'm not suggesting that they do anything. But my personal opinion that I really don't think is feasible for Newfoundland and Labrador harvesters to stay beyond Thursday bear report. And if the crab goes into the market and the market fouls, well, if we wait another month, and we put all this crab into the market at one time, which we will be putting more crab into then, because all the northeast coast will be, all the northeast coast, because some will be going as of now, especially the ones outside of 200 and uh, large subs. But uh, what, what I want to say, what's going to happen like a month down the road if all those crab goes into the market at the same time? The U.S. economy is not going to get that better overnight, not in my, not in my opinion. You know, you can't make people eat crab, and you can't make people buy crab. So, like, there's a catch-22 here. Like, But that's that's the same circumstance together. today. It doesn't matter if we're talking about today or weeks down the road. The market will pay what the market wants to pay. No more, no less. That's right. That's right. And we're tied up now, and there should have been boats like in places like 3PS. When the processors didn't want to buy crab till after Easter... Our crab season opened April 4th, like when they should have, and anybody who wanted to go across the Gulf then should have been able to go across the Gulf. And maybe the processors will change next year when they wanted to buy crab. But, you know, like, I think right now that there's a, that there's a way far more harvesters that would be interested in gold fishing, or that's what I hear, because I talk to different fishermen, different zones, stuff like that, and it seems like... Uh, you know, like uh, nobody wants to lose. It's better to work for some money than work for none. That's for the that's for the average Joe fisherman will say. You know, because trying to operate an enterprise. But you know, like uh, I, I don't mean to offend anybody. And like I said, my family is not saying this. I'm saying this. But uh, and I always spoke my piece about fishing, and I I, I just. When the, the lessons go this morning, you know, somebody's going to have to do something. And I haven't got the answer if he puts the crab into the market uh, or we put the crab into the market and, uh, and the bottom goes out of it. But then again, I wouldn't have the answer in a month's time if he puts all this crab into the market and the bottom goes out of it. 
you know, I don't know if I made myself clear, but I hope I did. I think so. But, uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's an annual gamble, right, isn't it? So last year, really very lucrative. I mean, the lowest amount they got for a pound of snow crab was $6.15, as high as $8 at the beginning of the season. So when you had that kind of year, then you, you know, I guess it seeps into your head that, well, I'm, I think it's going to be about the same next year. And then next year comes, and it's a third of the price. And boy, oh boy, like, I don't know what it would take to make any money at the crab this go-around. I've heard people use the numbers maybe $3, $3.10, but they're not even even getting that anywhere else, whether it be Quebec, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, or PEI. So it looks like a really tough season for all hands. I don't even know if they're going to go at it. Well, I think know, they probably will at I some point. But I can't, I, I can't see Paddy Hill for the like of me how some of us could go at it. Could not go at it, you know? Yeah, I assume that some uh, people I'm will eventually, sure. I'm out there for less than 220. But I'm not saying 220 is good. Don't get me wrong. Please don't get that it mixed up. 220 is the worst. But sometimes you got to take the good with the bad and suck it up and move on. And if anybody got any answers, I'd be glad to hear them because all I hear is that we're not going fishing. And uh, that's not all I hear. That's what I heard first. Things are starting to change now. I would imagine but, they will, yeah. But, you know, like, anyway... Like, Point no, taken, Peter. The ones to make it better, but you know, like right now, I think for the for the harvesters uh, and uh, okay. especially for the like the the ones that is able to fish right now, whether it's inshore or offshore, or, or you know, like three ps or wherever it is. Okay. You know, but thanks for taking the time to take me call and uh, you know, like prevail with level heads. You know, like, uh, and I got no disrespect against any harvester but right now i think we should look at the average harvester not at your own personal condition appreciate the time peter thank you appreciate yours thank you take care bye-bye all right let's take a break when we come back we're talking daycare don't go away weekday mornings from 5 30 to 9 jumpstart your day with jerry lynn Mackey and ben murphy newsmakers traffic weather and more during your vocm morning show welcome back to the program let's go to line number three good morning karen you're on the air Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm doing okay. Just okay. What's happening? <laughs> it's all related to the for first and foremost to the public workers that are out there. I know they're marching hard. Um, I know being a public worker myself, working in a hospital, you know, it's not an easy thing to be going through. So it's all there to do. Fair enough. Um, the one thing that I'm calling about right now is. The argument uh, regarding the daycare and having children with autism. I got two children, both on the spectrum, both go to daycare. Um, without the daycare, I would have to quit my job and stay home. Uh, the last time that we looked at our finances, if we were to actually have one stay home, and won't work. We would not be able to afford it. But then you're making too much when even having that one person working. You're making so, too much, what does that mean? If you're making too much income. Uh, so if one was to stay home and one was to work, you're still making too much of an income to even get a bit of help, to even get a drug card. Oh, to qualify for government programs. Okay, I didn't know what you were talking about. Yeah. So that this is where I'm lying. Uh, this is where I'm laying at right now. So without our get, without our daycare being enforced and being attacked, we would have nothing. 
So where does that bring us to? We may have to move at a province. Again, because of this new autism action plan that Haggy put in, you had two choices. You had the services of the daycare, or you would have one parent stay home and have an ABA worker come in and one parent go to work. Because it's not financially stable for that one person to actually stay home, two parents must work. So the other option was to have the children get to daycare. So now everybody with children with under the spectrum, um, their services in the long run will also run out at the age at the grade four level. So, Sorry, just help me understand. The autism action plan had what impact on daycare and whether or not a daycare operator was willing to have, you know, any child with any exceptionality, whether it be mobility issues or on the spectrum or what have you. So how did that impact daycare? So when the action plan was put through, you had two choices. Either you could stay home and have an ABA worker come in and have another, like, uh, what they call a direct home service worker come in as well. Or you have him in daycare. So the choice was yours. And the choice was made that two parents must work in order to survive, in order to raise children. So now these some of the directors and owners are starting to say that they cannot have the people with autism there. And then there's a two-year waiting list for an ABA worker. We don't even have enough ABA workers here in this province. There's a lot of them that are actually getting discharged that not, not even be looked at as qualification for an ABA worker. So my question is to the government, because it's not so much the response, because not all directors, not all management and ownerships of daycares are going with this. I know the ones that um, our children, thank God, are going to, um, the owners are not looking at, you know, getting rid of people with disabilities and autism. Thank God they got enough they got enough staff down there for status quo. But some of them that are, it's not right. And the government got to step up and realize what is being done. So are they gonna get more services provided to the to ASD and other disabilities out there? It's a fair question. You know, I, I guess inside the operations of daycare and early childhood education, it got more complicated when the there was amendments back in 2017. But if you need an inclusion support worker, regardless of what it is you need that person for, if the operator doesn't have that staff, I guess that's where they find themselves. Now, it gets a little bit more confusing and also more troubling. The one family that really got this story going in the media, and it actually made the national media over the weekend, said that her yeah, child her child was progressing uh, beautifully at daycare, socialization skills, mm -hmm. verbal skills, all the rest of it. And the year prior, the child did not need or have an inclusion worker. But all of a sudden this year, apparently was told that they do. And because they didn't have that inclusion worker, that the child was being discharged from daycare. That lady, that woman uh, says that she finds that to be discriminatory. And I tend to agree. It is very discriminatory. Like, I mean, if someone had to say to me, um, your fall is running out and you need an inclusion worker and suddenly like our children never did have a, a say if I was in the same scenario. I'd be like, wait a minute. No, no, no. I'd be fighting the right to suit nail. So cahoots to her. I mean, it's her right to she's her children's advocate. 
she's the best advocate for those children. Absolutely. Or child. Um, I mean, we're the only people that are their voice. Children don't have a voice right now. They do, but they don't. They do when it says no in the classroom or to an adult or if they don't want to do something. But in regards to fighting their battles for them against government workers and against daycare and everything else like that, we as parents take on that role when we hold them for the first time in our arms. We're their advocates. Of course, yeah. that's And naturally, uh, being part of um, so many different sectors outside of my household, such as, um, you know, I'm, I'm a presenter for Learn Disability Association. Uh, and I put just as much effort into that program as I do with my child. And I will fight to nail if that ever comes across me to give what those two children need. Because in this province, it's hard enough now paying the bills and paying and keeping up with the government and the gas and the list goes on and on, than to be setting in and worrying are your children going to be a part of that daycare? Fair enough. I appreciate the time and the concerns this morning, Karen. Thank you. So government needs to step up and they need to start focusing on what's better. Do they want their problems going down even further than what it is and have a bunch of people move away from Calgary? Like, I mean, they're already taking and maybe they just want to put the rest of us out there for sale. I mean, they got just partially sold anyway. Not 100% sure what partially sold means, but uh, I get the concerns inside of daycare. I hear a lot of very similar stories. I appreciate the call, Karen. Good luck. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, again, you know, good concepts need all of the infrastructure in place before it actually materializes as good. No doubt in my mind, based on everything I've read, regardless if you have a child uh, of daycare age, Affordable, accessible childcare is good for all of us. And again, my boys are in their 20s, so it doesn't impact me directly. But when you start with just simply a good concept and don't put all of the meat on the bones in the back end to prepare, then, of course, we find ourselves where we find ourselves today. So even looking further down the road and saying, okay, $10 a day, excellent. But let's think about what's going on in daycares already whether it be with lag time for wage subsidies or anything of the like and yes you can change a pay grid for early childhood educators and hopefully that will help put more people into that role and maybe bring some back into the fold but even if you think about what the inclusion worker who that person could be who they were prior to the amendments in 2017 to acknowledge that maybe just maybe we're going to see more and more people take advantage of this affordability issue but we have to make sure the accessibility is done at the exact same time concurrently so okay allow a teacher to do what they're doing in the k-12 system a retired teacher is work for 90 days without impacting your pension and that'll ease the pain for now while we try to work towards more and more ECEs then issues regarding the requirement to have your level one certification of course you need a professionally trained staff I mean it's just too important a job to not but if we just ease some of the burdens while we get through graduating more early childhood educators maybe there's something to be done versus what seems to be a shrug of the shoulders on something as important as this not good enough let's take a break don't go away welcome back let's go to line number five good morning caller you're on the air good morning Patty morning to you I'm uh, calling in to make the public aware that uh, as a public service announcement 
uh, about uh, the First Nations Caring Society uh, with Cindy Blackstock. And um, what that's about is it's a lawsuit with uh, government and child youth and family services. And um, what lawsuit? It's about, pardon? What lawsuit? There's a class class action lawsuit going on right now across Canada, where uh, children have been denied uh, the Jordan's principle, which is the right to services denied by government and child youth and family services, whether it's um, medical, uh, as in counseling. Um, Education, medical equipment, stuff like that. And um, it's where children's been denied the rights to services. And there's also a SOTOS, S-O-T-O-S, class action lawsuit against uh, the rights and discrimination of children uh, traumatized by child youth and family services including uh, all First Nations children, Métis, Inu, Mi'kmaq, being alienated from their families, uh, extended families, grandparents, aunts, uncles, uh, their siblings, and uh, being alienated from all, like, their culture and their family. And I'm just wondering uh, why uh, Newfoundland media isn't, isn't putting that out there. Uh, because it's well known, and uh, there was a case in Newfoundland a couple days ago where uh, Lynn Moore um, took a case to the Supreme Court in Newfoundland where the child was in in foster care and sexually abused, and there was it was in the news media actually, and. Uh, she witnessed that child witnessed her sister being killed or and possibly yeah so i mean this is going on uh children are being taken from daycare they're being taken from schools um i know back in 2014 um there was uh, an article cbc had done uh chris O'Neill yates where uh children um uh, were apprehended and the parents weren't even uh, questioned by child youth and family services and uh, many children were took were, were stolen and um, like you're looking at inclusion here for these children of these children uh, not having a voice and uh, not being heard and which the child advocate as forth uh, in prior years and um, the child advocate wasn't even aware of children that had died in 2009 and still today there's no stats uh, being brought forth by um, the advocate's office on how many children have died while in Child, youth, and family. Yeah, there was actually legislative change about the reporting system, as there absolutely rightfully should be. This whole uh, class action lawsuit was there was ten prairie based bands that brought this forward. I think it was filed in federal court. 
middle or end of January. And it is absolutely what, about what you talk about. It's the whole mass scooping. There was even children, many children, in this province included, taken from their parents or their mothers right from maternity wards. So this is not an unknown issue. Fair and enough. And that's still occurring. Like, uh, government will say that it stopped, but it's occur- still occurring right across the country. Uh, children are being apprehended right at birth. Uh, it's, it's colonialism. It's it's like residential schools did not go away. It's as Murray Sinclair said, uh, residential is the monster in the child, youth, and family services system, and they child uh, social workers have so much power that they're abusing their power. And they're just stealing children on hearsay and assumptions without facts, facts, factual-based information. And children, there's witnesses going to court and testifying that children should be returned. Professional people stating that children should be returned. And Child Youth and Family Services hires their own psychologist to to keep their position and not return and not return the child to the family. Yeah, just last month there was a settlement of almost three billion dollars between the government of Canada and I can't remember the numbers of First Nations bands that were involved in it, but that settlement just did take place and this new class action is based on something very similar. The the settlement was based on residential schools. This is about, as you say, the interaction between governments, child youth family services, and what they refer to as the mass scooping. You're right, that is part of what's happening. On the legal front, I and mean, of course, we just finished the hearings in uh, Nawashish last week about Inu children in care as well. Uh, very quick last comment, too, before I have to go to the news. I, I mean, there, there's children in CBS were, which were abused, and social workers knew they were being abused, and they did nothing to protect them. We have Quinn Butts' uh, death, where uh, Andrea, Andrea Goss is the uh, interviewed by W5, and she clearly states that um, a judge, police, and child youth and family services um, didn't, did not protect, when they knew there was evidence, did not protect Quinn. And Zachary Turner, Which same is kind thing. Of the, uh, it's the exact opposite of the issue regarding Indigenous children. Uh, yes, and Quinn Butts' murderer is in prison where he belongs. Uh, thanks for the time, uh, caller. Yeah, but it's no different, Patty. It's still continuing, and the residential okay. schools and child use and family services are suppressing children and okay. not giving them any counseling and violence protection in the province and no harm news the land. The, those groups. They're blocking every avenue for anybody to speak out about it. Well, thankfully, you took the opportunity to speak out on the show this morning. I appreciate your time. Off to the news we go. Stay in touch. All right, thanks for that. Let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the editor-in-chief of the Rec House Press. That's Rennie Roy. Good morning, Rennie. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, congratulations on your recognition with the Atlantic Journalism Awards. Bravo. 
Oh, well, thank you again. <laughs> it, uh, it, it's nice to, uh, to have gotten it all. I mean, it was a good night. Well, here I am working at a, a news outlet, and I followed along closely with your coverage of the ongoing storm that was Fiona and then the aftermath. Before we get into some of that stuff, let's talk about the origins of Wreckhouse Press. When did it come to pass? Who's been largely behind it? Uh, Wreckhouse Press, actually, is my sister and I uh, put this company together about three and a half years ago. Uh, we realized there was a news desert out here on the West Coast, and we wanted to fill it. We've had some experience in the past. Um, you know, involvement with uh, Saltwire and uh, Transcontinental Media. And uh, we decided to to give it a shot. And we, we took off running, and, and it's been great ever since. So we, we've been at it uh, with, with ourselves and uh, our reporter, Jamie White, and uh, never looked back. I would imagine you had international coverage and some of the, the images that you were sharing, the stories you were sharing, were spread far and wide globally because this was covered in many corners of the world. What does that meant to Wreckhouse Press? Not just the recognition in the form of hardware and awards, but what does it mean for the stability and the viability and the long-term future of the press? Well, that's always the question that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking at is trying to figure out exactly how much more we're going to be able to do and how long we're going to be able to do it. But... When Fiona happened, I was being reached out to by uh, CNN, the New York Times. I had BBC, um, Australia, Kuala Lumpur. Um, it was everywhere. So the recognition, as you say, it, it lends us a lot of credibility and it really raises people's awareness about us. Our subscription rates went through the roof, which is, of course, something that every outlet wants. Um, so it really gave us a, a lot of confidence in our ability to to maintain our business and keep it viable for for the long term. So it was unfortunate that it took such a horrible thing, of course, but at the same time, it it was uh, you know it, it certainly put us on more of a a map, so to speak. You know, like even in an outlet of this size, I'm sure the newsroom certainly different than what I do for a living, but it's the struggle between getting out into the marketplace with information and images quickly, all the while trying to maintain cal- uh, quality. So Fiona's a very unique and a terrible situation, obviously. How do you approach things like that, even through the trauma that was post-tropical storm Fiona? Because you want to get it right and you want to get it out there quick, which is a real struggle inside the news business. Absolutely it was. Uh I would say the first four or five days, um, you know, during and after Fiona, um, we were very concerned with making sure that people were informed and people knew where rescue centers were and, you know, where the danger zones were. So I was, my concentration was absolutely 100% on getting information out and making sure that it was right. But I didn't really concern myself with, the quality of the writing or the quality of spell checking and so on. I just wanted to make people aware of what they needed to know. Um, It was a real challenge because we, you know, for the first two days after that, we had, uh, we had almost no Wi-Fi service. Internet was spotty. Telephone communication was, you know, really poor. Um, So it was, it was a real challenge, but I think we, uh, we met the challenge just by, connecting on to 5g network and doing what we could with my cousin we got evacuated to my cousins so we we used her internet for some spell and um you know just making sure that we could get any information out there that was you know helpful to the general public was was my only concern at that 
that first week. Just in general terms or broad strokes, you know, the world of media and media information gathering has changed dramatically in the last 10 years, we'll say. The presence sure. of the Googles and the Facebooks and the consolidation of so many big media outlets, foreign funding of media outlets. So let's talk about the general importance of community-based newspapers, online presence and what have you, because you've got the boots on the ground. You hear the stories where you live. Big media outlets, they talk about the big subjects from 100,000 feet above sea level. Just talk about the importance of what you do, because I think a lot of people have kind of misunderstood the place that community newspapers have had for so many years and how many have been forced out based on just the the market penetration by the big guys. Yeah, absolutely. Right now, like you can go on to Yahoo or Google or Facebook and you can take a look at a news story from Reuters or the Associated Press, but it really doesn't have any bearing on your local community. Um, Port of Basque and, and the area around here, we've got a readership of about 3,000 people. Um, you know, it tends to be forgotten unless something big like Fiona happens. So to get out council news and to get out news about major road closures or, um, you know, perhaps there's some wildlife in the area that people need to know about, this is stuff that directly impacts my readership. And that's what we want. That's what we concentrate on, basically. We try to make sure that people get news that's relevant to their daily life. Because if I want to read about the rest of the province, I can go on to another news outlet and read about the rest of the province. But there's nothing else here that's relevant to my readership. So that's where the importance of local community news is. It's all about what you can do for your community, what's happening in your area, and what you need to know. So to me, it's it's one of the most important things that's, that's starting to disappear, unfortunately. It really is, and it is quite unfortunate. Let's talk yeah. about what it's like out there now, because there was so many individuals and businesses and organizations trying to pro- provide goods and support, and government yeah. stepping up with money, and federal government matching dollars and the like. But of course, people are still waiting to find out when the money's going to flow. So some of the personal stories that you're hearing, and paint us a picture of what the community looks like today, post six months or seven months post Fiona. Well, it's uh, the landscape itself, I can tell you now, is starkly different. Uh, where we used to have residential areas, now we have beaches. Um, that's one of the more striking things. Homes are still coming down. I mean, there are dump trucks uh, rolling here through town today, just about two blocks from my own office and my own home, uh, tearing down some, some houses that were damaged beyond repair. So there's still scars that are, you know, coming coming to the front because they're seeing their homes taken down eight months after Fiona. Um, you know, the, the mood around here, I, I think, is kind of torn. Uh, some people have received monies. Some people have received compensation. Some people are still waiting. I don't think there are many left uh, waiting for, for financial assistance. But, you know, we, we do still have two families or three families remaining in uh, hotel living. Um, and right now it's... It's, there's still so much uncertainty and, you know, we keep preaching patience around here, but at some point, unfortunately, people's patience is going to run out and you know, tensions can run high. So it's, it's, it's definitely been a struggle for a lot of folks. And uh, again, that's where community news comes in to try and explain what's happening and what they can expect. So 
you know, we're doing what we can, just like everybody else here in this community. Patience is one thing, and eventually people run out of patience. Let's talk about some of the emotions in the community, because, of course, when we see a big storm being forecasted, whether it be in this neck of the woods or somewhere like in Port of Basque and other communities on the southwest coast that were battered and devastated by a storm like Fiona. So when the forecast is being read out, whether it be on the 6 o'clock evening newscast or right here on VOCM, how do people react? Because you can only imagine imagine the emotional hangover is going to persist for years to come. Oh, no question. And, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people um, in this town, and uh, I've heard that, you know, a lot of the younger folks that were in their homes with their family, their children, uh, you know, they don't like the water anymore. They don't like hearing the sound of the waves because it just brings it all right back to the forefront. I've talked to some families who have since left this community. They don't want to be here anymore. It's just too... Too many hard memories to to try and you know try and handle. So when we get a big storm now, I know that a lot of people are far more aware of exactly what things mean, such as millibar pressure and you know storm surge. I think people have a, a deeper understanding of just the impact that a, a couple of points of pressure can have on the, the weight of a storm. So. There's definitely a different perspective here in town. Um, I know there's a lot more apprehension about being on the water, and uh, there's there's a lot of homes for sale in this community right now because some people are just not prepared to, to go through this again. I can only imagine. I mean, that Saturday afternoon, I literally had to lay down my phone and get away from it for a while because it was just overwhelming. It, it, yeah, the the sights were just un- incredible. Yeah, like uh, I woke up at, uh, I believe it was around 7 o'clock that morning, 6 or 7 o'clock, and uh, it was approximately 30 hours later that I finally sat down. Um, you know, the the storm, I likened it to a 12 or 14-hour freight train just going right by your head because that's what the noise and the sound was like. You couldn't walk outside without tasting salt in the air because the sea was everywhere. So... You know, when I go for a walk now or I I go fishing or go for a boat ride, every time I taste that salt on my lips again, of course, it puts that right back to the forefront. And I didn't suffer any damage to my home or my office. I was extremely fortunate. But, you know, for someone who may have lost everything or run for their lives when their building came down or was, was inundated with water, you know, that, that emotional reaction is going to be so much more visceral. It's going to be so much more intense. So, you know, there's still a lot to process. There really is. And even as someone who was fortunate enough to not suffer that type of damage, even just the visual you painted there about the taste of the salt on your lips, even though you were, got away unscathed, members of your community didn't. And that has oh, a widespread, it's a whole concept of community grief, you know, and grieving. Yeah. It's remarkable. And I'm really pleased that you made time for us this morning, Rennie. Uh, keep up the good work and congratulations on the accolades. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Take good care of yourself. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Rennie Roy, editor-in-chief of the Rec House Press, recognized for their coverage of post-tropical storm Fiona with some impressive awards, one at the Atlantic Journalism Award Ceremony that took place uh, one day last week here in the city of St. John's. All right, that's pretty good stuff. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, PSAC, don't go away. Come back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. I want to start by wishing all our provincial and municipal government public servants a belated happy St. George's Day. St. George is, of course, St. George is, of course, the patron saint of England, and and back in uh, 
like 380. He was a, a soldier in the Roman army, and uh, he was from modern-day Turkey, and uh, he uh, wouldn't follow the orders of his leader, and so he was martyred. And so he's the patron saint of England, but ironically, he was ne he's never visited England, and also, ironically, it is not a public holiday in England, St. George's Day, but it is for many here in this province. Yeah, yeah it, it, that's true. And you can't go very far in many towns and cities in England without running into a pub called George and the Dragon. Yeah, just interesting how we pick and choose. Well, some of those holidays, look, I, you know, I don't know if there's still a time and a place for St. Patrick's Day as a holiday and St. George's Day as a holiday or Orangeman's Day as a holiday. It all seems a little bit antiquated as opposed to pick some days throughout the year to commemorate whatever. I mean, I, people are going to say, boy, cancel culture. No, it's not cancel culture. But, I mean, for St. George's Day to be a holiday far and wide for so many different people in this uh, province or country is just sort of strange to me. And I'll throw St. Patrick's Day in, in there as well as an Irish Catholic. You know, I just find it all a little bit strange yeah well you know at, at the very least people should uh, somehow celebrate a holiday that they get I don't know exactly how that works but anyway yeah, I, I, mean, some people, I think the same thing happens you know whether we talk about Easter holidays or Christmas holidays they are far and wide spread across the, the of society pardon me but not everybody subscribes to that religious ideology either, right? So we're just taking breaks, whether it be for days or days on end or weeks, and associating it with one thing or another. But how many people uh, take Christmas holidays? They have no association with Christmas beyond the commercial side of it, which is fine and fair. Like, I don't care how people think about those types of celebrations. But it's just so strange how so many of our breaks are still associated with religion. You know, I don't know if it's a bad thing, but it's a curious thing. Well, it's also curious that there's a, uh, an elite few who get to observe these holidays. But anyway, not to get too hung up on that. Um, I think we, I think as a country and as a province, we need to, we need to talk about the PSAC strike. And I want to start by starting with whether it's even a legitimate strike. I mean, I, I think there should be legislation passed that. In order to basically shut down a lot of very important services in this country, you should at least have a majority of your members vote, period, whether they vote in favor or not. I mean, you know, according to the numbers that have been released, there's 120,000 PSAC members who could have voted, and only only 35% of them actually voted. And of that, 80% voted in favor. So you've got 33,937 members who voted in favor representing 120,000 members and 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 obviously those who are not essential are suffering hardship trying to live on $75 a day and being out in this weather but if it's a hardship that they wanted to avoid they could have voted well they should have voted however what does that say did, did they choose did they choose to vote no by not voting or did you choose to vote yes by not voting? Like, well, it, I mean, it, nothing works that way, though, right? And it's constitutionally protected the right to strike. They hadn't had a contract in quite some time. So I don't know how you mandate a certain threshold of participation uh, in a, a strike mandate vote or what have you because it's a constitutionally protected feature of organized labor. Correct. But, you know, like in Australia, for example, you know, if you don't vote in, a, in your national election, then there's consequences. And I mean, all I'm saying is that, I mean, I, I just question the legitimacy of something so significant and whether or not, I mean, you can pass legislation to, to motivate 
then in that case, this case, this union or any union to get greater participation, to educate the members more and to expect them to vote. I mean, I've just thrown out whether it's even legitimate, but, you know, the consequences for those people who didn't vote, obviously, if they if they did, if they said, oh, well, I don't want to vote. I, 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 hopefully it won't happen or whatever. I mean, I, I don't know exactly why they wouldn't vote or maybe if the union even had a good mechanism to vote. But so that's the first question. Is it legitimate? And I guess, you well, know, it is. Many it, people it, would believe it is. It, it is by your measurement. Well, I would. I don't know any other way to measure than the current measurements that we have in place. So I don't know if it's uh, if it has the overwhelming majority, as stated by Mr. Albert on this program and other media outlets. But I don't think that questions the legitimacy of it. It could be certainly debatable as to how and why people chose not to vote and what their intentions may have been. When those numbers were released, I was really surprised. So just over 42,400-odd people even chose to cast a ballot, which I was really, really shocked by. I'm never surprised these days when we see the apathy that reigns supreme in municipal, provincial, and federal elections, because there's a variety of contributing factors to that. But in organized labor, I don't think I've ever heard numbers like that. No. um, And, you know, and again... I wonder what that says about whether remote working and and whether this disassociation that COVID has done and remote working maybe in particular, which is a big thing that, that PSAC is fighting for, whether that's also showing the di- disconnection amongst its members with the union. And I would argue, given the fact that I mean, most people, if you talk about public service, like the level of public service that we've been receiving through the pandemic and still even now, and, and you really can't blame it on COVID, we hired a whole bunch of new employees. We hired a whole, we, we, we've hired a bunch of contractors to try and increase service. And it seems like getting someone on the phone or getting a return or getting action, you know, if you're one of the million immigrants or someone waiting on, on um, you know, can't afford this pension, some sort of assistance. It, it just seems like we're hiring all these people, hiring contractors. And Eve Giroux, who is um, parliamentary budget officer, you know, says that out loud, like, where's all the money going? We have more public servants, more contractors, but the services and the service standards are not increasing. And it's a bit late to blame it on the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and you know, what we hear, you know, Somehow, magically, we allow the representatives of these unions to say that remote working causes productivity to increase. However, that doesn't seem to be evident if you look at the facts, as you know, as I just laid out, the fact that not only is service and service standards not increased, you could argue they've decreased, and yet we're throwing billions and billions of dollars trying to increase it. And the other thing I think is fair to say is that if you're working remotely and in the first year, you know, you took a little bit of time off and you, you did your personal stuff and whatever, as you become more and more disassociated and because you really, there's, you've lost that cohesion with your workforce, with your manager, with your colleagues, and with probably even the clients that you used to interact with perhaps, um, then that will increase over time. And there are studies that do show that that productivity is actually decreasing the further people work remotely. And that, that's not those unique people that everybody thinks about how amazing they are with their working at home. And I, re- I referenced someone last week who can get all their work done in two days. Well, guess what? Now they actually are getting 25 hours a week in overtime, I've discovered. And so now not only are they getting paid for their five days, they're now getting paid, you know, in the same week. So, you know, those, that's a really productive person, relatively speaking, but we're paying them a lot more to do what you would argue that their colleagues should also be able to accomplish, at least in some measure. Okay. 
Yeah, I know that's a lot, but I mean, like, like you reference contractors, which which I think is an important side issue, and there's a study being done uh, by Carleton University on contractors, and apparently departments heads don't even know how many contractors they have working. And these people have lap- government laptops, they have emails, they have cards to get into buildings, and they're making on average between $1,400 a day and $2,800 a day. So, you know, I applaud the union for making that an issue because obviously that's ridiculous. <laughs> but, you know, you, you just lay all that out and, and you just have to ask yourself, like, because we all have to pay for it. And then you had Chris De Labor- Laborte from PSAC, P- PSAC on last week, and he made the ridiculous out loud statement that there's a study that says that for every dollar we invest in the public service, there's a dollar twenty-eight GDP return. And, and you know, just the fact that they sit around a boardroom and say, "Oh, this is a good talking point that we should put out to the public that just give us more money," because, because you know, ultimately, I know we're borrowing that money, which gets lost in the conversation because that money is not coming from some magic fund. Um, it's borrowed money, and we're going to be better off. And then we're going to spend that money in the country, i.e., by you know, a home or or maybe travel or, or buy whatever we buy, you know, that money could also be spent by the government or not spent by the government and then be lost, you know, because when we borrow money, then future people have to pay it back, either in directly from their increased taxes or whatever else, or indirectly because of standard living drops because ultimately sure. you can't have it all. Yeah, remote work, not everyone is created equal, right? I mean, I know some of my pals that since March of 2020 have not been to the office other than for some strategic meetings and what have you, and they're doing great. They're knocking it out of the park. But Canada has long had a productivity problem inside the public and private sector. It is not new. Some people could indeed be very efficient and effective. The one message that I'm surprised that there are the two messages I'm surprised they don't drive home a little further is, for instance, if the government wants to talk so much about emissions and what have you, you know, I would have done some sort of study to give us an idea about how, many, how much uh, greenhouse emissions have been taken out of the equation because people aren't traveling to work. Number two, if the country's saving billions of dollars in commercial real estate costs because people were working from home, then I'd be saying that stuff out loud if I was PSAC, and repeatedly. Not, you know, wages keeping up with inflation, because very few people in the country have that benefit at this moment in time. So, those two things, I think, one, the climate change issue is right in government's sweet spot. It's hard for them to counteract that one. And savings, I think, perks all of our interest, or peaks our interest. So, anyway, uh, Tom, final thoughts before I have to go. You know, last night when I was going to bed, Bev asked me what I was going to, my wife asked me what I was going to talk about and I said that and I said you know in a perfect world your, your two points you just said just the greenhouse gas impacts but you know then then you just connect it out and say well that's true well we could replace a lot of them with computers or we could even use call centers that are in a like country where you're paying five dollars an hour but the reality is that that's it's a, it's a good argument if we were getting the productivity if you know to say well, we're going to say that but that's not what's happening and anybody who tries to get someone on the phone or tries to get a project moved or whatever they're, they're working on with the public service, that's not what we're seeing. So, I mean, I, I just think, you know, generally really entitled people who've got, like, gold-plated pensions. By the way, one thing I didn't mention was that RBC just came out and said that their guaranteed benefit pensions they were managing last year in 2022 went down in value by 10.3%. That was the return, minus 10.3%. Uh, however, the federal government, all their employees, their pensions went up by 6.3%. These people should put their heads down, be greedy grateful to have 2%, because they're going to get these post-dated checks back. Like A lot of them are going to receive over $12,000 on average in this magic check that's going to appear. Less taxes, of course, but just a lot of stuff to think about, and we need all to be informed, and I hope we get this worked out. Take Appreciate care, everyone. Tom. Thanks, Tom. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye.
yes, and if you want to elaborate on that or you have another side of the uh, conversation you'd like to bring to bear or any topic under the sun, you know what to do. Pick up the phone during this break. Vera, you're next. She wants to talk about medical transportation. Don't go. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two, Vera, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hi, Vera. Uh, this, this is Vera calling. I'm calling. Um, there were a couple of weeks ago, I had an early morning appointment at the hospital. So I phoned to get a, an hospital for the night. And uh, because I wasn't 200 kilometers away from uh, the hospital, that uh, they couldn't give me a room. And there was rooms vacant there. Um so I was wondering, like, you know, um, like that seems like discrimination to me, like, you know, because you're only so many kilometers away. Um, I had to go in, and which would have only cost me $40 to get an hospital for tonight, but I ended up having to pay $100 for an hotel room. Okay, so you were looking for a room where? Sorry? At, at the hospital in St. Anthony. At the hostel or the hospital? The hostel. Okay, at the hostel. And there simply wasn't one available? There was some available, but uh, I couldn't get neither one because I wasn't 200 kilometers away. Oh, I see. Okay. And, uh, I mean, like, you know, I think that if people got uh, early morning appointments, I mean, like, you know, you could run into snow or anything and probably not get there. And uh, another thing is, is that, I mean, like, there's animals and everything on the road, uh, caribou, moose, whatever. And, I mean, like, you're trying to get, you'd have to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning or 4 o'clock in the morning and leave and go to your hospital appointment and uh, and that when you could go here in St. Anthony and only have to uh, get up and walk to your appointment, right? Like, you know, those early morning appointments, that's what I'm talking about, right? I get it. So I suppose they had the rules for distance from the hostel in place for a reason, so that they could have them available for folks who are traveling the longest distances. So what are you suggesting they do? They just make case-by-case decisions? Well, they could do that, yes, or, well, like, you understand that uh, people outside the province, but, I mean, like, this was late evening when I called them to um, the, uh, the hospital for an hospital. It was about probably 5 o'clock in the evening. I figured, like, by that time in the evening that, uh, you know, that if anybody was coming, that they would be probably there by then, right? And if there was something that was vacant, that I could get it, right? I understand that. So how many, do you happen to know how many rooms were still vacant that evening? Because, you know, things can change very quickly for someone to need that type of uh, support at a hospital. But do you happen to know how many rooms there were available that night? Uh, no, I don't. Like, she never said. She just told me that where I was at 200 kilometers away from the hospital that I couldn't get a hostel. And so you ended up staying in a hotel room for more than double the price, the cost. Exactly. Okay. And, uh, I've, uh, I've let my member know in the premier's office. I've let them all aware of, like, what is going on. 
and um, I did get a reply back from Chris though, said that she was going to see into it, but I haven't heard anything back from anybody else. So, you know, um, but I mean, like, I don't think that it's fair that, uh, well, if it's full, you understand. It's the same as if you go to a hotel room and or a hotel and uh the hotel is full. You can't expect them to make room for for you. I mean, you understand those things, right? Yeah. Well, the hotel is in there for a different reason than a hostel would be. But I, I think I get that point. Uh, I appreciate yeah. the time, Vera. How are you? Feeling okay? Well, I'm feeling okay, but I mean, like I have to travel to Anthony three times a week, and like you know, and like I had a couple early morning appointments uh, for my dialysis. And uh, so I'd rather, like, go down in the nighttime uh, rather than have to get up 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning and beat across to St. Anthony, right? Are you eligible for home dialysis? No. Okay. No, no. No. I appreciate the time, and I wish you well. Thanks for telling us about this one, Vera. Okay, and thank you very much. My pleasure. Take good care. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number three. Deanne, you're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Doing great. You? Good. Oh, I've been better. <laughs> What's happening? Um, I'm calling, actually, uh, on behalf of a friend of mine who's asked me to reach out to media to get some attention and shed some light on a horrific gap in the healthcare services she's getting. Um Basically, she struggled with an eating disorder, with anorexia, for almost 20 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, she relapsed after, I mean, she was in solid recovery for years, but she did have some traumatic things happen, and she relapsed. And that brought her back to the HOPE program and inpatient treatment, and then she went away to Homewood in Guelph, which is a private treatment center. Um, and she just got back from there uh, less than two months ago. Um, but what's happening, um, when she was preparing for discharge from Homewood, that team met with the HOPE team. They agreed on the follow-up plan for her um, and basically for what would help her sustain recovery. And when she got home, she found out that the HOPE program wasn't okay with that plan, and they changed it. Um, so she tried to conform with it. But after five weeks, they called a team meeting because um, she'd lost three pounds, which is to be expected when you're transitioning back. Um, But they said if she lost any more weight whatsoever in the coming months, she'd be asked to leave the program. So she continued on and, you know, like she said, she left that meeting and she felt like a complete failure. Like her best wasn't good enough and her eating disorder kind of took a hold of her again and she did lose more weight over that month. And then yesterday she went in and she's been asked to leave the program. And it leaves her with nothing. She has no access to individual therapy. She has no access to her dietitian. And just to add insult to injury, the wait list for the outpatient therapist and the outpatient dietitian in this situation is closed because it's so long. So not only did they take those services away, she actually can't get on the wait list for where she can get the services somewhere else. Okay, just make sure I'm totally on track here because curiously, even before you called, uh, Paul Toomey from the Eating Disorder Foundation is actually uh, in the queue as well, so I'll get him, uh, he'll have a chance to react to what you're saying. So you say the plan changed, so help me understand, the plan changed from what to what, which eventually saw her 
Okay, having so, to leave. So because she's been struggling for so long right. with an eating disorder, and like I get it, I've also been struggling for thirty years. Um, so, I mean, it's a different dynamic when you've struggled for. 20, 30 years than it is for someone coming in with an eating disorder who's had it for two years. And because of that, the treatment um, module they suggested coming out of Homewood was what they called modified or harm reduction, which meant, no, she won't follow a full recovery meal plan. She will follow a meal plan that will keep her medically stable and will allow her to work and function because that's what she needed. She can't sustain a full recovery model, but she can sustain a modified one. So Homewood discussed this with the HOPE team. Um, she was in on this meeting. The HOPE team agreed to it, and she came home, and her first meeting with the dietitian here, she was told, this isn't going to maintain your weight. We need to add this, this, and this, and she was basically put on the full recovery model. And I can't stress enough, as someone who's had an eating disorder myself, how terrifying that is because she knows she's fighting for her life and she came home thinking the team here was on her side in supporting her in the model of treatment that would work for her to sustain her recovery and instead she was told nope you're going back to this full recovery mode and she said okay so i'm going to try this and she tried And after a month, they called her in with the team and told her she had lost three pounds in five weeks, which honestly, your weight can fluctuate like that no matter what. And also in a transition period home and back to work and more activity, that's to be expected. But they said that wasn't good enough. And if she lost any more at all, she would be asked to leave the program in a month. And she left there thinking she was a complete failure. And she had been thinking she was doing really well. And it shattered, and the eating disorder took hold again. And she did lose more weight this past month. And she met with the team yesterday as a result, and sure enough, they told her to leave the program. So, and you mentioned she's unable to get on a wait list because the wait list is closed. The wait list where? For outpatient treatment at a, a healthcare facility or a recovery center? Well, through, through mental health and addiction okay. here, like Eastern Health. Sure. Um, basically, what would normally happen in this situation, if the HOPE program says you need to leave the program, you're not meeting our requirements, um, they would refer you on to outpatient um, psychology and outpatient dietitian services so that you could still be followed by that. Um, however, she was told yesterday in the meeting that they're not doing that because the wait list is closed off. She can't even get on the wait list for them, but yet they've taken away the individual therapist she has there and the dietitian she had there. She can't access them now. So she's literally, like, she's been texting me since yesterday saying, she just keeps saying over and over, I feel like they've given me a death sentence. I just wanted to clarify those various points so that we have the specifics so that Mr. Toomey from the Eating Disorder Foundation can speak to them. And, of course, he doesn't represent governments and access to no. wait lists, what have you, but he can talk to the the uh, the issues as you've articulated this morning. So I'll give him that opportunity. Would you like to add anything else to it before we take a break and come back and speak with him? I, ju- I just want to say that, I mean, first, Paul Toomey is wonderful. I've spoken with him 
previously, and I'm sure we'll be speaking about this. And, you know, the advocacy they do is wonderful, but there comes a point where the government themselves, they need to change what's happening in our health care because we can't have people dying because they literally cannot access the services they need. That cannot be happening. These are people with families. These are people who have potential and who have places to go. Like You cannot just leave them to die. It's not okay. It absolutely is not okay. I appreciate this and for raising the issues as you have this morning and hopefully the people who are responsible for ensuring access to these services because we're talking about life and death let's not downplay this we're talking about actual life and death matters so we'll get some reaction from mr toomey i have i have been to friends funerals who've died of anorexia i have been there i have buried them and i'm not willing to bury my best friends because our government can't provide her the health care she needs I appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Thank you. Okay, Deanna. Bye-bye. And as mentioned, Paul Toomey, who's the executive director at the Eating Disorder Foundation. He's next. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the executive director at the Eating Disorder Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador, Paul Toomey. Paul, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing very well. And it's just by coincidence that Deanne called while you were in the queue so we thought we'd let her voice her concerns which I'm sure you've heard similar stories repeatedly over the course of the past number of years what's your reaction to what you heard well uh, I guess the the first reaction just to be clear Patty and and you said it I I obviously can't speak to individual cases they may not have come through here or we may not have had any any relationship Uh, Deanne did say that we've spoken and yes that's true Um, So I can't speak to the individual case, but I can speak to the wait lists uh, that that seem to be happening. Uh, Actually, earlier this morning, we had a discussion here about uh, dietitians and therapists. So I was aware as of uh, this morning that... uh, uh, wait lists right now seem to be uh, at a standstill for both the uh, dietitian and one of the one of the therapists and and that clearly is concerning it's uh, something that uh, we will be discussing with um, with the NL health folks and particularly the people at the management of the whole program to see what we can do to alleviate that uh, from our perspective uh, we know that there's a major issue with dietitians in the province generally who will deal with the eating disorder patients or who will treat them and that's something that uh, we want to work with uh, with the healthcare system to try to try to change those things are very concerning uh, again i would have to leave it to eastern health and the program to speak to any changes they've made to programs um, you know to to uh, to accommodate certain things uh, my understanding has always been that uh, the programs have been very flexible and they and they work with the individuals but uh, but then Again, I can't speak to that, and I'm sorry about that, but but I, I can, as I said, speak to the wait list issue. It's very concerning. Uh, we heard from Dr. Janine Hubbard, I think, on your station and others over the last two or three days talking about the uh, exodus of uh, psychologists from, from the province. And the fact that it's stabilized doesn't take away from the fact that there are a high percentage of positions within um, 
the healthcare system and also privately who are not available, who were available several years ago. So major, major concern. Uh, certainly we'll be having our discussions with, with Eastern Health uh, on the wait lists and on the uh, need to have more therapists put in place. Even the story as Deanne described it, it sounded so counterintuitive to me because it sounded like the person that needs to help so badly was turned away, as opposed to those who are managing and maybe not as in as dire straits as this young lady seemed to have been. So you'd think that when we're talking about even just triage, those who needed the the uh, the quickest and need the most level of uh, medical support or treatment, just like we do in an emergency room, you think those would be the people jumping to the tops of lists as opposed to first come first served? Yeah. Totally agree with with your comments there. Again, I can't speak to the individual case, but uh, I understand there is a good triage system between uh, the three programs uh, within within healthcare: the uh, adolescent medicine program, the Hope uh, outpatient program, and the and the inpatient program. Um, now, uh, Deanne mentioned the fact that uh, her friend had been away to Homewood, and that does happen on a number of occasions when when the services are not here or they haven't worked for the individual that somebody will go to uh, a treatment center outside the province but but that's certainly been reduced with the uh, with the addition of the inpatient program several years ago and uh, again to the best of my understanding there is a triage program and they do design their programs to work with individuals the most seriously ill as quickly as possible now one one comment i will make and uh, i know this is this is going to be tough to hear but the mortality rate of eating disorders, especially anorexia, is there. It's, it's known that 10 to 15 percent of people will not be able to recover and, and will, will die. And that's not a statistic that we're happy to hear. But it is a fact, and it's one that's reported nationally and internationally, that it, eating disorders have the highest mortality rates among uh, mental health illnesses next to opioids. So uh, while not nice to hear, it, it is a fact. Wow, which is a fact that I was unaware of. And now, given that some of your conversation was spurred by Deanne's comments this morning, did you call about anything else, Paul? We make sure we get to that before... Yeah, I did, I did Patty. Um, I, I wanted to put a plug in for some of our fundraising efforts. Um, and, of course, our fundraising efforts are the difference between us being able to um, do some of the, uh, I guess, lobbying for more services and more individuals, as well as providing support for, for families, which uh, we're, we're always there to do. Um, we are the, uh, I guess, the beneficiary of support from the Rogues basketball team. Uh, the game tomorrow night is uh, in support of EDFNL. And uh, if anybody would like to go, uh, check out our website or our Facebook to get the promo code to buy a um, a slightly reduced price ticket, $19 versus uh, $20.50. And we'd love to see people come out. Uh, we'll have our ticket booth there. We'll also have our information booth there as well. So uh, it's it's a great awareness event for us, and we're, we're thrilled to be doing it. Uh, in addition, our quarterly 50-50 draw is rapidly drawing to a close. May the 15th coming up. It looks like uh, we're over $1,000 right now, but we got a ways to go. So 
anybody who wants can, um, again, edfnl.ca or just call us, 709-722-0500, and we can get you some tickets on that. A uh, few other things coming up, but maybe I'll save those until next week to talk about. We can do that, Paul. Appreciate the time this morning. Good luck. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Paul Toomey, the Executive Director at the Eating Disorder Foundation of NL. Okay, time for the 11 o'clock news. When we come back, appreciate the patience of those in the queue. We're going to talk about the fishery. And then Mike has a question about opportunities to gamble. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Ryan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on your shoulder again. Happy to do it. Um, uh, just for any listeners out there, I uh, called in last week about some of my own personal struggles I'm facing there with rules that divide us. But uh, essentially, I think yesterday's announcement there by the ASP was probably one of the most catastrophic announcements to the industry since John Crosby announced the uh, Cobb Moratorium in 1992. So, uh, like a previous caller this morning, Patty, I don't represent any one group or organization. I represent everyone in a fishing, fishing boat or area in a plant that are... Uh, basically facing bankruptcy the year i don't uh, i don't want to offend asp either because they're on they're only taking advantage of the hands the hand that they're being dealt they had the ability to dictate these same markets that they're analyzing so uh, i think it's uh i think it's a fact that dumping old crab into the market here now into the uh, united states is initially going to drop its value and uh, in turn the price will drop with it well, I'm a little bit at a loss for some of the, what I thought was slightly contradictory statements. For instance, if there's a glut of inventory in the market and the market has collapsed, at the same press conference, they say introducing more crab to the market will see enhanced competition. Consequently, the prices will rise. If there's not a market for what's in the uh, inventory at this moment, I'm not sure how the second statement works. No, Patty, I, I don't know either. Actually, I uh, I really like your word counterintuitive because it's a it's a very familiar word in the industry now. When you're when you're when you're digging in when you're digging in digging into things, it uh, I know I know I don't have the answers to all the problems here this summer. I know there's people tied up alongside of me that are going to go bankrupt here, no matter if they're in big, medium, or large boats. They're not going to be able to cover their interest costs if they just uh, if they stepped into the industry. And again, I would love to have the answers. But I don't know them. But I also know that reactive decision making don't lead to producing positive results. If we continue to months and weeks before a uh, before season opens, try try to develop markets and develop market strength, it's counterintuitive to think that it's going to work. Look, I mean, I think it goes all the way back to. You know, even if the market isn't able to bear more than the price being offered at this moment in time, that's a conversation that we can have. But there's a deeply flawed process in how we set the price anyway. The panel themselves said this is probably not the right price. But at the same time, you look around Atlantic Canada, and it's very similar. It's five cents more a pound in Quebec, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI. So I don't know where this lands, but for the fish harvest, for the crab harvesters in particular last year, it was such a banner year. Landed value, you know, some three quarters of a billion dollars then, of course, you have that feeling that seeps into your mind that it's going to be that way every year, when, in fact, we know yes. that the market fluctuates so drastically and dramatically some years that banking on similar windfalls is always going to be tricky business. And then it, then it hits even so much harder. You know, so you got eight bucks in the spring, early spring last year, being offered 220 this year. It just it must be a shock to the system. 
It is, Patty. And just to put that into perspective for any listeners out there that think the majority of fishermen here across the province had a windfall last year, our total revenue in our boat last year was $91,000. That had to be divided among three people, maintain their gear, and run an enterprise. So that's... uh, I, I do understand that the consensus out there is that we are, a lot of us do very well, and there is some successful ones among us, and uh, hats, hats off to those guys. But they are facing the same struggles this year as we are facing as well. They're not going to be afford to run their enterprises on this. So basically, I wouldn't encourage or discourage anyone from tying up or going fishing either way, but I, I will ensure that my boat, if they're going to choose to go bankrupt with dignity, and stay tied to the wharf. My boat will be stayed up right, tied up right alongside of them. I won't. I'll, I'll do what the majority wants, not what not what suits me best. Basically, my situation. I where our enterprise is owned. We don't have a lot of overhead, so it's a uh, it's an easy decision for me. But I know it's not an easy decision for all these boats that I'm looking at right now that are facing bankruptcy. And that's the same for the uh, people in the fish lines. They're, they're they got the same struggles as us. They stay awake at night too worrying about the fishery and worry about the price of crab and wondering where, where the future lies. Of course they do. Yeah, it's uh, just uh, something I found very ironic. We're talking about, again, I was on your show last week talking about rules that divide us as fishermen. Something I found very ironic is that uh, as a child, I grew up in a community with the uh, largest inshore fishery in the province, and we had a crab plant. After the industry got professionalized in 97, the crab plant disappeared, and now we have two fish plants, one of which, one, just catered to tourists. Basically, they are a, they are a middleman shipping company that catered to tourists in the, in the community. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's catastrophic what's, what's going on, this announcement yesterday. And don't get me wrong, the ASP, I don't want to offend them either. They are just taking advantage of the hand they are being dealt. Right now, I'm sitting on pocket aces, but I know the majority of people in fishing boats alongside of me are sat on a deuce and a fuzz. Yeah, I mean, how many enterprises are going to be able to come out the other side of this and remain viable in the future? I guess it's anybody's guess at this moment in time. There are thoughts well, that, like, for instance, if I'm going to lose money at 220, I'm not doing it. I mean, why would anybody entertain that for the sake of losing money? And, of course, if you can make some money, maybe not to the extent that you made last year, and, of course, nowhere near what you made last year, then making some is probably better than making none. Well, Patty, to put that in perspective, oh, sorry, to put that into perspective for you as well. Again, like we said, our people people think that we uh, we hit the jackpot there last year, but many many of us just barely survived. There's years, like for instance, we have we we, we depend or we will best case scenario at three ten a pound this year if we come out at three ten, we would have fifty five thousand dollars worth of revenue. Like uh, basically, there's times there's times it costs us money to run our enterprise and, and pay a crew. So a, lo- a lot of us seeing fishing because we got to be fishing. We're fishing because we love to be fishing. But there's also a lot of enterprises that they, they don't have they don't have other options. They don't have other choices. But they have large overhead. They have large loans. And, and that goes for all of us, not just people in small boats, people in middle boats, middle distance, offshore. I can't even put in perspective myself what it costs to run one of these big, beautiful, 65 or 94 boats it's it, it's out of my reach I, I don't under i don't even understand the operating cost people i can look at it and think oh god look what they landed last year i might i might be able to look at them and look what they landed but i don't I, i'm not getting their bills either i don't receive their bills so it's uh 
again, it's we can't be divided. We got to be united all together, and that's a uh, basically every in, every organization or group in the province. We all communicate. The public might think that we fight amongst each other or we argue amongst each, each other. Sure, we do, just like our family does home. But in the actual fact, we all talk talk amongst each other. Do we, do we look at each other's views and opinions, and we're all after the one common goal, and that's to protect the industry, the people, the people in the boats, the people in the plants, the spin-offs that depend on it. They all depend on the fishery. We are the backbone of the province. Well, I mean, if if it works for one harvester with one species, then I imagine it works for all. There's always going to be some differences in the size of vessel you operate and where you fish and all those types of issues. But there's very similar concerns across the board, obviously, because you're all in the same industry. Uh, anything else, Ryan, before we take a break here this morning? No, Patty, just just like you just said, uh, figuratively and literally, we are all in the same boat. That's, 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 that's the actual reality of it. These government... The government-appointed officials, they need to start listening to what the majority of the industry wants, not just not just the voices of one or two people. I, I think I may have said it on your show the other day, but they are the, they're the same guys that stood on podiums in the 80s and made a strong stance against foreign overfishing. And at the same time, they're, sign, they're signing off on agreements to let the foreign boats come inside the 200 to fish flounder and target our cod. So th- th- that needs to stop. That needs to stop or this industry becomes destroyed, not just in my community, but in every community across the province. Appreciate the time this morning, Ryan. Thanks for the call. Yeah, thanks for having me, Patty. T- take good care. Good luck, good, luck, good luck to all the fishermen out there here, all the plant workers. Fair enough. Thanks, Ryan. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, Mike, appreciate your patience. You're next to talk about an interesting topic that rears its head every now and then it's an interesting conversation coming up don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number two mike you're on the air hello mike are you there on line number two mike david we have pot uh, that pot up and ready to roll let's see if we can put mike on hold get back to him now in a second david you might want to see if he's still there for me please thank you line number five caller you're on the air Hello, line number Hello. five. Hello. Yes. Good morning. You're Hello. on the air. Good morning. Would you like to speak about something? Yes, I'm Mike. I'm the one that's calling about the casinos. Oh, we had you on different lines. Okay, that's my mix-up on my screen. I appreciate that, uh, Mike. You are now on the air. Go right ahead. What's on your mind? Yeah. <laughs> I'm questioning why Newfoundland is the only province in Canada have a casino is it the only province in canada without one only one i didn't know there was one in pei for instance but fair enough i haven't been there in a while well i inquired about that and somebody told me that there is one in pei could but be even, i don't even know so yep well i guess the thought here has long been that with the prevalence of gambling and problem gambling adding a casino could make an already terrible situation for some people even worse but what about the revenue that they get and all the good they do with the money from the casinos? They build community centers, whatever it is. Well, it depends on who owns the casino, I guess. It's the societal impact that the government has long talked about. What? 
understand. Uh, I mean, I'm sure St. John's could support a casino easily with the boats that come in all summer long and, and the number of tourists that come into Newfoundland. It, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Do you think people travel, unless we're talking about Vegas, do you think people or some other notable places on the face of the earth, do you think people travel simply to go to casinos unless some of these notables like Las Vegas, for instance? Well, I'm a person that, that did. Uh, moved back for, uh, last, two years ago, and we up, up the mainland, we used to travel to different casinos. I quite enjoyed going to all the different casinos around, not just, in, uh, say, Toronto, uh, Hanover, uh, Durham, all kinds of casinos, Woodstock. And uh, we'd go for a night, spend a night in a hotel, go to the casino in the day. Most of them have uh, buffets and restaurants. Uh, and like I say, the... Uh, Everyone understands diamonds the, for kids. Sure, people understand the lore of a casino, and I mean I've been to casinos before, but I think you know it's just a societal issue here in the province that I guess the evaluation has been made by successive governments that what would it mean reality what might be one thing to generate revenue, quite another to generate some possible misery. And remember, it's not that long ago that there was a class action uh, suit being proposed about VLTs. And imagine the comparison uh, between a VLT and every uh, game that's available inside the doors or the walls of a casino. Well, yeah, because the house wins. No, I don't know. I, I, every time you, you go into a, a place where the VLTs are, you always see there's always people on the machines. That's you know, the point. You know, like, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a question of the people have to guide themselves. It's like people that smoke, you know. You don't have to smoke. You don't have to do drugs, you know. The only difference there being we've tried or it's been tried in the past for some uh, prohibition type approach to a variety of things, whether it be tobacco, drugs, alcohol, and it's just never worked because the difference there is that there is gambling available here in the province today. You can go drop a money in a VLT, you can go play the scratches and the lottos, and there's endless lotto opportunities. I think similar arguments being made by some as to why this province hasn't latched on to the ALC online casino, right? Because that's an opportunity there available for us as well. And on that front, we only tally up what's actually spent with the Atlantic Lotto Corporation when there's untold millions of dollars being bet online and offshore every year from people in this province. Millions and millions and millions upon millions. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All the sports betting and everything else online now, I don't understand, you know, like why they wouldn't have one here. Um, Every province, every province has one, and, and I don't know. I just don't understand it. It's it's a backward way of thinking, you know, like, oh, well, what about the people that are going to blow their money? Well, I mean, if you're that foolish. But people you know, are. I know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I just was curious. I thought maybe there was a law or something that said they can't build one here or 
know. No, there's no law. It's just been a choice governors made. I believe, and I've been told, that the uh, a number of years ago when there were some thoughts of the uh, owners of the battery trying to sell, there was a proponent that wanted to put a casino in the battery and turn the whole thing into hotel casino operation. And the government turned it down. I believe the Danny Williams government of the day also had a proposal for a casino to come to the province. If that's not... Uh, accurate someone can fill me in but i think there's been various proposals over the years all of them shot down yeah i, I just don't understand it but anyway i thank you for airing my grief i appreciate <laughs> your time it's the only thing i miss having moved back here <laughs> what's your poison when you go to the casino what do you like to play i play the slots uh, all the time i've done fairly well uh, at them but uh, yeah we quite enjoy it the wife and i were retired and we it was a day out for us you know so, but anyway yeah but i suppose if someone who simply likes playing the slots virtually every pub and many restaurants are little mini casinos with their vlts which is in essence the slots you're not pulling a one-arm bandit but you're you're smacking the button yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, they've got the card. I, don't, I used to play the cards up in Rama, but uh, I don't play the cards anymore. I just I just enjoy the slot machines now. Yeah, um, some of the yeah. casino games are, not to say they're rigged, but the likelihood of winning over the long term is almost nil. Like roulette, people, it's such a unique yeah. game to get to. You can only play at a casino for, for the most part. But that is a fool's errand. You know, I think many people, they try to understand how to uh, manipulate the world of blackjack. And I think a lot of casino goers really like the blackjack tables. That's what I would play normally if I go to a casino. Yeah. I try to set a budget and stick with it come hell or high water. But there's also a reason that casinos play the tricks with you. The pumping into the oxygen. There's not a clock anywhere in any casino in the world. And then they get the free drinks because all of a sudden they want to play a $5 table versus a $10 table is enhanced on the casino side when they fill you up with booze. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But then there's, then there's people that go in. Like I went out one time there. Some more Yeah, the connection's breaking up a little bit this morning, caller. Or Mike. Anyway, let's. Uh, I think, did he drop out in full, Dave, or is that just a bad cell connection that we've got going here? Bad, bad cell. Okay, there we go. A final thought to you, Mike, before we say goodbye. All I can tell you, I went into a casino in Alora, put $10 in a machine, and won over $10,000. So, you know, for a 68-cent bet. I know a fella who won $30,000 on the VLTs in one day. Years later, well, I don't know. My, we have a mutual friend. Uh, years later, he said the worst thing that ever happened to him, winning $30,000 on the VLTs. Because the next thing you know, he didn't have a penny to his name. Lost it all. Not only the 30000 anyway. but everything else he had. Thanks very much. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Mike. Done. All right, bye-bye. Right. You know, and I've said this before, that the sports betting ads on tv are just relentless and some people appreciate uh, dropping a bet you know so what so be it i mean it's your money you do, do as you see fit the casino conversation we've had that every so often here on the show but when the federal government uh, put forward legislation that allowed for single game betting it changed the world in this country regarding the amount of money being bet. Now, I think there's an argument that some people can rightfully make about, well, why is the province not adopting the online ALC casino? Because, you know, for instance, I could be living in Halifax and do exactly that. So the money that they're not spending with the ALC, which gets redistributed, they're doing it on other online betting sites. 
that brings zero revenue to the province. So we are indeed seeing millions being spent beyond the Atlantic Lotto Corporation. But just for some context there regarding what the single game betting has meant, Ontario, of course, would have the biggest numbers for the obvious reasons. In 2022, Ontario gambling handle increased by 91%. 91%. The amount of money bet just on single-game betting e- expansion in the province of Ontario, $11.53 billion. Yeah, $11.53 billion. I mean, extraordinary stuff. Total gaming revenue was almost a half a billion dollars, and that's a, that was up 71% quarter over quarter from two to three to four. So uh, Ontario gambling, over $11.5 billion in one calendar year. That is a crazy number. Anyway, let's see. Uh, and, if, and someone's pointing out via email, yes, there's ample opportunities to gamble in this province. For instance, if, if slots are your thing, then, boy, you don't have to go very far to find a pub or even the back rooms of restaurants with the VLTs right there. And, yes, the, for the most part, they're probably full from the, de- uh, the time the bar opens until they close in the evening. Or I think midnight, I think the ALC shuts them off. Is that what the timeline is? I think it's something like that. All right, let's check in on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. My favorite is when you pick up the phone. Here's an opportunity to do so during the 1130 news. If you're in the St. John's metro region, it's 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Graham, you're on the air. Uh, good morning. Good morning to you. Um, I just called basically to, I was listening to the news and your last, not this one just passed, but the previous one, and you had an item on there about the uh, the World Energy Project here in, um, in on the West Coast, uh, the hydrogen project. And um, it, it, it seemed that the person, it was an interview with someone, I believe, uh, a university professor somewhere. Um, I just wanted to say that there is an awful lot of information out there on this project. Uh, the project itself just held a public information session, which was well attended. The place was blocked uh, here in uh, Stephenville uh, yesterday. I didn't recognize or see any media there. If they were there, they they weren't really well identified. But at that uh, session, the CEO of the uh, project, uh, his name is Sean Leet, and he was there with his team, uh, all the uh, different disciplines involved in it. And uh, that's the senior management team for this project, Mr. Risley, who is basically the... uh, the investor, I guess, um, and the owner, but uh, he was not there. Uh, the people that are going are in the process of executing the project, or at least trying to get there, uh, were all there and uh, answered questions. They had uh, tables set up with the different disciplines, and anybody could go over and ask questions and whatever you wanted. And I just wanted to pass that along. This. Uh, it's not the only one they're holding. They're holding another one in uh, Stephenville Crossing, another one, I think, in St. George's, and another one 
in on the Port of Port Peninsula itself, of course. So I just wanted to pass that along. There's an awful lot of information. This, you know, they advertised that they were holding these public information sessions. It's been out there for about two weeks now. And um, I, I will say that uh, I am very much in favor of this project. I think it's going to be the greatest thing that ever hit Newfoundland. Uh, we have an unused resource now, and uh, it's a resource that lasts forever, n unlike oil. <laughs> so I think it's, uh, it's something that we need to get on with, and uh, it's happening all over the world. Uh, it's just that we're a bit behind here in Newfoundland, but this is the way we're going to catch up. I don't work for the project. I'm just a resident here. Right, and so, you know... Insofar as being behind the rest of the world, this whole concept of green hydrogen is pretty much in its infancy, which is, I think the argument that Risley and maybe the province would be making is that if you get in early established markets, you might have a chance to grow opportunities for these types of wind farms and wind hydrogen projects uh, here in the province. Because we've got the wind, the water, the deep sea ports are proximity to the most lucrative markets at this moment in time. So as a proponent, it's simply because you see an economic upside here pardon me you're uh, you're a supporter of this pro potential project simply based on economics of course so what do, what do you see as the big economic benefit is it in the jobs oh. or is it in the royalties or a tax base like where do you think this big bump comes from well i th the royalty regime as i understand it has not been yet established however uh, the opportunities for tremendous royalties for the province exist, and I'm quite sure they're going to negotiate whatever they can do the best they can, the same as uh, they did with royalties for the offshore oil. Um, the issues of uh, the environmental issues, which were well, a lot of time was spent on that yesterday, uh, are very important, and they're, con they're complying with every single request the government has made been an awful lot of money spent so far in the planning uh, for the project. Uh, they have many, many world-class uh, partners in this, and it's going to be, uh, in my opinion, the, be the, the best thing that's ever happened in Newfoundland. Now, uh, there's only, uh, we're only talking about the initial state phase here, which is on the Port of Port Peninsula with the wind generators there. However, there are other, uh, two other states um, uh, stages that uh, will, will be developed in uh, different locations. Now, uh, my understanding is that, uh, well, uh, the, the product that will be produced here is green uh, ammonia, and it will be shipped as green ammonia because that's a lot easier to ship than hydrogen. So there are sh there's plenty of green ammonia being used, uh, or ammonia being used in the world today. Green simply means it's produced from green means, in this case, electricity produced by the wind. Yeah, the ammonia is the carrier for the, product, for the product. Ammonia is the chosen carrier based on its density to of carry course. the hydrogen to market. Of course, yeah. and uh, its ammonia is produced by adding, I think it's nitrogen or something. Anyway, it's a chemical process that can be, you can convert it. So we know that the, the um, raw material is water, it's H2O. So they get the hydrogen out of it, the two parts, and they vent the oxygen off to the atmosphere, or in some cases collect it. And I believe also that the, um, in terms of the, the production here, um, the plant, of course, uh, will be built in Stephenville, and uh, 
the uh, the electricity used to power the electrolysis process and power the electrolyzers um, will come from the windmills, as it's called here, wind generators. And some of these things are, are you know, they're big and uh, they're very productive. Uh, so I, I really see the few. There's tons of these things. Or, you know, there's a lot of projects around the world that are in production today of this kind of stuff. Uh, we're the I shouldn't say we, but this location here is the first one in Canada. However, right, the the royalty regime has been established for these projects. Uh, for instance, the one place where you can have a royalty, of course, is on water, and water being one of the most precious commodities in the world. And the issue people have with that is that it seems to be fairly low number, real pennies. I have no. Uh, just let me interrupt you, Patty. I don't know what the royalty regime is. Okay. Did not. I have. I haven't read it if it's been established yet, but I would assume there's also going to be royalties on the electricity produced. I don't know. No, the the implication of the electricity produced is that some excess might be sold back to the grid, which has an implication for the ratepayer, given what's coming on stream here at some point, we assume, with Muskrat Falls. I, I don't know anything about that, so I can't talk to you about it. No worries. I'll tell you what the royalty know, is, though. What I can say is that the water supply for this particular project is the same water supply that was used here for the mill. That's right. Yeah, it's an industrial it's, reservoir already established. That's and, right. Uh, well, it comes from Mine Pond, and it, it's, it's already there. So there's yeah. nothing, no extra water. But, you know, I, I don't know if the mill was ever charged royalties for the water. Don't know. But I can tell you um, the project is exciting. It's, um, it's something that is going to be the best economic opportunity for people uh, ever seen in this this area so yeah of course there's opposition from some quarters to sure. it yeah. i believe that the most of that opposition is uh, is ill-informed and um, i i don't think very very uh, very high in numbers so um for for and i do know this that the project people have very they've tried to accommodate uh, the people who have been against it in every way, shape, or form, but they've basically refused, in my, from what I hear. So uh, on it goes. It's going to continue. And uh, uh, whatever um, requirements are re- the government has made in terms of the environmental impact statement, uh, that they are working very hard on that. So uh, all in all, I can only say that uh, I'm very enthusiastic about it, and I think it's going to be an economic driver for the not only Newfoundland, because there are other projects that are uh, have been proposed, one in Botwood, and there will be other ones. Well, so, there was 31 proposals, of which, of course, many yeah. of those won't be viable and won't be able to raise yeah. the capital. But just a couple of quick notes on, on the royalties and, and the money. So operational jobs after construction are not huge, but it'd be a big shot in the arm positively for people looking for work in that part of the province. The fee yeah. being charged, there's a crown land lease fee, that's part of this, and the water fee. So it's a fee of $500 per thousand meters cubed of water. So the other issue with that that well, some people... That, you're saying that's the, that's the royalty regime that's been established? Yes. 
okay. Yeah. I, didn't, I wasn't aware of the numbers. Yeah, no worries. It's uh, 500 bucks per 1,000 meters cubed of yeah. water. The yeah. issue that some people speak to on that front is that no water royalties will be collected until the company, the proponent, recoups their initial capital investment. So Risley's talking about for the 164 wind turbines in phase number one, I think the number they use is $12 billion. So until they get that back, we don't even collect that water royalty, which is a question that people have. Well, I, I have this. I, I, I don't know. And I would imagine that's going to be a, uh, an issue of negotiation between the project and the government. I, I don't know what, what, what it's going to end up as, but uh, I don't know anything about that part of it. All I'm trying to do today is inform you that there are public information uh, sessions being held all over um, the, uh, the region, and that if people want to know about the project, they should go and find out. Uh, absolutely. Whether you're all in or all out, questions need to be asked. And there's a whole concept of social license. If you live in the area, you know more than I do about the level of support or opposition to the project. You know, one side says the folks who are opposed, they say they have the overwhelming support of the community. World Energy GH2 says the exact opposite. So I don't really That's know. That's not true. They don't have the overwhelming support. I, I know people there. It's it, Anyway. Um, I don't want to get into that, you know, who's right and who's wrong, but the issue, there, there are very important issues here. Um, uh, unfortunately, this area of the province has been economically depressed for many years, and, you know, we had a, a paper mill here, Abitibi gave it a good try at the, for 20 years or something. I wasn't living here then, but at that point, it, um, you know, there was three or 400 jobs in that mill that disappeared. Uh, my understanding is going to be about 300 permanent jobs after the, uh, the uh, construction phase is finished. And those are going to be jobs that are going to be, uh, they're going to require training, uh, technical knowledge, and so forth. The project has arranged technical training. Uh, the curriculum is being provided from a college in, uh, in Holland. And, or the Netherlands, and um, it will be the train. It will be carried out by the College of the North Atlantic here. That's already underway, as I understand it. Now, uh, there are a lot of other disciplines involved, and uh, it, it's a complex project. There's no question about it. But uh, all I'm saying is, uh, I'm all in, 100% behind it. And um, I just hope that uh, the rest of the uh, projects in Newfoundland come about as well, uh, because it's the most, uh, you know, the, the, the very important thing about it is the resource lasts forever, unlike oil. Wind will never disappear. No, and even Risley says they'll never be able to use all the water that's currently in that reservoir, I'll call it. You know, what I find absolutely... It's supplied the mill for 20 years. Understood. So a paper mill uses an awful lot of water, too. So, you know, it's... it's uh, All I can say, um, um, Patty, is that uh, it's a wonderful project. People need to get themselves informed about it. Um, I also... <laughs> Uh, quickly, as I wind up, uh, I heard someone talking about um, casinos and Newfoundland being the only one without one or something. And I, I will tell you something that Newfoundland, I know, definitely is the only one that doesn't have it, and that is counties or municipal governments. And part of the problem in Newfoundland, of course, is you've got a, two or three hundred little tiny communities all trying to be, you know, with municipal affairs attempting to manage them all and 
it's it's a tizzy. Uh, I lived most of my life in cities and other communities, and um, I can tell you that municipal governments and and county county governments are are wonderful because you are able to separate the services into you know a more manageable and responsible way instead of trying uh, you know with these little communities like we have a, a Kippens is a community of about 2,000 people. We have a town council, but we've had our problems with that town council in the past. It seems to be going fine now, but uh, we'll see. So basically, that's all I have to say, Patty. So thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Take care. Thank you. Okay, great. Bye-bye. You know, and I've said this before, and I think it's worth repeating, is so much of the focus in this wind to hydrogen possibilities or potential here in the province has been on World Energy GH2 on the Port-of-Port Peninsula, when in fact there's 31 applications the last we heard from government. Now, of course, many of those will never see the light of day, very likely. It is going to be hard to capitalize these projects. And, you know, because Mr. Risley, an owner and an investor, undoubtedly he's going to have to borrow an awful lot of the money, uh, the vast majority of the money, to get this project off the ground. And then there is uh, thoughts and commentary out there in the world about the high cost of production and what that might mean for markets long term. I don't know, but that would be John Risley's worry or anybody else who's proposing these things. But when you compare the feedback, the pushback from some people on the Port of Port Peninsula compared to other parts of the province, notably in Botwood, for instance, where the Exploits Group has put forward their proposal. Botwood and their mayor and seemingly the residents are all in as well. They say, look, this is something we need. We need the jobs. This could be a real uh, savior for the area. So they're one way in that part of the province. And then I'm pretty sure it's because John Risley has uh, a reputation and has some baggage, as people might refer to it. And he's a firebrand, right? So he's a polarizing figure that I think that's why we see some of the way people are reacting on the Port of Port Peninsula. If you want to speak to supporting Graham's perspective, maybe speaking to the other side, or any topic to wrap up the program this morning, you can give us a call during this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. I'll ask per an email or questions about the announcement we heard late last week, I guess it was on Friday, about the first ever electric vehicle battery plant in North America coming to St. Thomas, Ontario. And the concern there is about the price tag that people are using of $13 billion. The breakdown, as far as we can tell, and every report that I've been able to read, is that VW, Volkswagen, is going to build the plant. It's going to be some complex about the size of 350 football fields with a price tag of $7 billion. They're, they're building the plant. They're paying the $7 billion. The $13 billion comes into the equation that that's the value of tax subsidies that the federal government is willing to provide to Volkswagen. And, of course, that's based on production. So they've established some production thresholds. They say they'll be able to build about a million batteries a year at that plant once uh, construction is completed in 2027. So it's the tax subsidy. If they hit whatever targets they've established between the company and the federal government, they'll get those tax breaks. Now, some people say, well, it's the same thing as putting $13 billion out there for the company to use, like cash on the barrelhead. Well, not really. Now, I'm not saying this is a good idea or a bad idea, because that's a huge number of royalties, or pardon me, of taxes that will not be paid, but it's vastly different than giving them $13 billion. So, you know, it would be interesting to know how they come up with some of these massive numbers in the first place. For instance, if they say there's going to be 3,000 jobs, okay, and that would make the value of those jobs add up to somewhere in the neighborhood of half a million dollars a year based on the... 13 billion 
Then they say it's going to generate some $200 billion in economic impact, positive economic impact over the decades. Number one, what are the decades? <laughs> what time frame is involved in there? How do they come up with a number that says $200 billion? Sometimes when they talk about things like person years and all those things and what the value of economic impact would be, it might be nice to see how they arrived at that number because it sounds very convincing. You know, we turn aside $13 billion in taxes for $200 billion in economic activity. That sounds like a pretty good trade-off, but how did they get that number? You know, sometimes it feels like numbers are plucked out of thin air. So this will be part of a supply chain issue. It might be of some great value, certainly to the region, and 3,000 people are going to get a job in the plant. And then the other questions being asked is, what happens if it shuts down? You know, so seven years, 10 years down the road, Volkswagen walks away from the plant. Well, then tax subsidies stop as well, because if you're not producing, consequently not hitting production thresholds, then there will be no sub tax subsidy because there's nothing to subsidize. So I don't think there's any risks to the taxpayer if and when it shuts down. You know, there will be monies out the door between now and 10 years from now if that's the timeline that where people think there might be some jeopardy. But the appetite for the product seems to be pretty strong and seems to be growing year over year. And again, it has absolutely nothing to do whether or not you like electric vehicles or are ever considering an electric vehicle, think it's an important industry. It sort of doesn't really matter because if someone's buying the product, that's all that really counts. And the numbers of electric vehicles and hybrids is growing. The stats are pretty clear, including in this province, where for electric vehicles alone, there was an increase of 125% year over year. Same thing with hybrids. I think a bit less on that front. It was about 53% was the increase. Still only represents a small number of vehicles. Because even if you look at global electric vehicles, there's only some 3% of the entire world's fleet of vehicles is electric. So it's not like the market's not going to shrink beyond that. Some governments, including the federal liberals here, have said that come 2035, you're only going to be able to drive an electric, or pardon me, an internal combustion engine if you already had one. Every vehicle sold after that will be electric, so says the federal liberals. Now, that might go entirely by the wayside when and if governments change hands because the nature of the beast, right? All right. An interesting point Tom made about the legitimacy, that was his word, regarding the PSAC job action, the strike here. You know, when only 42,000 plus out of the 155,000 members cast a vote, representing some 35%, you know, he questions whether or not that gives him a legitimate strike position. And I did mention this, but I'll say it again because someone keeps telling me that we didn't say it, but of course I did, is that we elect governments on as much or less. So, you know... We don't call a government illegitimate because voter turnout was low. Because that's not on the parties or on the government necessarily. It's on the general voting public that choose to vote or not to vote. All right, good show today. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.